From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A 500-ship fleet will be the Defense Department's new goal, according to a forthcoming future Navy force study. Documents Defense News reviewed lay out a lighter fleet with fewer aircraft carriers and large surface ships. A force study also calls for more surface ships and more unmanned ships and submarines. A bipartisan group in Congress from across the ideological spectrum says it's too soon to kill the office of the chief management officer at the Pentagon. A letter to the chairs and ranking members of the Armed Services Committees in both chambers calls the office, quote, essential to achieving the objectives of the national security strategy. Senators Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, and Todd Young, Republican from Indiana, were the top signatories on the letter. Some of the other signers included Democrat Elizabeth Warren and Republican Ted Cruz. The General Services Administration will get a new fleet management platform. The agency awarded a $75 million task order to Carson Solutions under the new Comet Blanket Purchase Agreement. FedScoop reports the new advanced fleet platform will handle GSA's vehicle buying, leasing, rental, and other vehicle programs. The House has passed a continuing resolution that would keep the government up and running through December 11th. The Senate has until Wednesday evening to agree on that CR or another one before the end of the fiscal year. Jessica Clement is staff vice president of policy and programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, welcome back. I'd say here we go again if it wasn't so trite, but we're in the same situation we seem to bump up against a number of times. Is there anything different about this CR than what we've seen before? About this CR, there is most certainly not. Of course, there was leading up until House passage because we are in an election year. And of course, I don't have to tell you that we are in a very contentious election year. So there was some you know, discussion leading up to it, what it was going to include. You roll coronavirus relief of some kind into it. We are, of course, past that now with House passage of the CR. What do we know sitting here on Monday about what the Senate might do before Wednesday? So both chambers are out today for the Jewish holiday. They come back tomorrow. It is anticipated that the Senate will hold a cloture vote tomorrow to move forward with the House version of the CR. One report I read this morning said that the Senate could pass the CR as early as tomorrow night, although I think Wednesday is probably more likely. As long as it gets to the president's desk and he signs it before 11.59 Wednesday night, we're fine, right? I mean, we're fine. Federal agencies are not because they've well, been operating on okay. continuing resolutions for, you know, decades. But yes, as long as the president signs it, uh, federal employees see, can, go to, can go to work on Thursday. And that's, that's at this point, I, the bar is very low, Jesse. All, that's all that matters is... Are people going to show up for work on Thursday? That's 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 all I mean by fine. We have literally accepted that our elected leaders can continue to kick the can down the road on their most basic of constitutionally mandated duties to fund the federal government. Um, we I think we're all in a situation where we just accept that CRs are the way we do business and hope that agencies get their full funding by April.
Um, and is it February? Because it, it's no, Groundhog it's, Day, it's right? Not, Are we unfortunately, in it's 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 still September. It's not February yet. Um, and but that's that's really all I'm getting at is is there anything here that gives anybody on the Hill reason to think something could happen in the Senate in the next two days that we wouldn't so see far, a bill on the president's desk? So far, as of today, as of this morning, as I was researching our topics for discussion, no, there's nothing that leads us to believe that there will be a problem passing this in the Senate. However, two days in legislative terms is a lifetime to others. So, you know, I'm not going to say all is well um, on the Hill because you, I, I don't want to predict anything in 2020 anymore. <laughs> all that does is demonstrate the reason that we continue to have you on as a guest because you have been a veteran of what goes on there and know not to try to use a crystal ball about anything to do with Congress. What else is on the horizon? You've mentioned the stimulus uh, that is and isn't happening given whatever day we decide to look at things. What, what else is on the landscape right now that federal employees should be thinking about? Um, just going back to that stimulus, a COVID relief package of some kind, Pelosi has indicated that the House may do something um, along those lines this week. Of course, you know, the House passed the HEROES Act um, months ago at this point in time. I'm sorry, days are all blending, I'm guessing for me and everybody else. Uh, so the House has already passed a coronavirus relief bill that the Senate will not take up, um, looking to maybe pass a smaller one. We also have that pesky payroll tax deferral. I know folks on your show have talked about, so I won't belabor it, um, but I will just encourage federal employees and military personnel as well who are subject to that to stock that money away because there is no guarantee that that loan is going to be forgiven. Are you hearing from NARF members about that, Jesse? We are, um, and it's not obviously gonna impact every federal employee. There are income limits to it. Um, what has me more concerned are folks who may not even know it exists, who got their first paycheck last week and are like, oh, great, I have some extra money. Wonder why that happened. Um, and they just aren't aware of it. I'm particularly concerned about that for military personnel, um, partic particularly in lower ranks who tend to live paycheck to paycheck and may not have the luxury of setting that money aside uh, come January when all of a sudden um, unless Congress acts, 12.4% is going to be withheld from their paycheck. So it's a it's a very tenuous situation. And I'm just using this opportunity to remind folks that this isn't um, free money. This Right now, this is a deferral um, that will have to be paid back unless Congress takes action to reverse that. What, based on your experience on the Hill, I know I just said you don't make predictions, and now I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. What is the likelihood of that happening does it not seem likely to you that Congress would have mercy on these folks who are in lower income brackets and say, you don't have to pay the money back in January? So I can tell you this as of right now, you know, talking to you on September 28th, right? I bring this up often in conversations with members of Congress. And as best I can tell, this is not even a part of the discussion in relief packages. It definitely wasn't for the CR. Um, this is this situation because so many employers aren't taking advantage of this. When it comes to the federal workforce, this is not getting the attention it deserves on the Hill, in my opinion. But we won't see the ramifications of this until January, 
which would mean if Congress was going to do something about it, it has a good three months to make that happen. Um, and, you know, we're sitting here having a conversation about federal funding two days before the fiscal year ends. So if Congress were to act on this, certainly they're looking at a three-month time frame in which they can do so. It doesn't strike me that in their view, time is of the essence. Jesse, thanks very much as always. It's great to see you. Thanks, Francis. You too. Up next, fixing the data problems in the intelligence community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how better data could propel the intelligence community forward. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The administration has a new data ethics framework as part of this year's federal data strategy. The Center for American Progress is looking how, at how the intelligence community can make better use of its data. Alexandra Schmidt is policy analyst at the Center for American Progress. She and her colleagues Katrina Mulligan and Matt Olson are writing under the title, What the Intelligence Community Doesn't Know is Hurting the United States. Welcome. Uh, thanks for coming on the program. One of the things that you and your colleagues wrote that jumps right out at me, Alexandra, today's IC lacks foundational mechanisms and data to effectively meet the needs of its customers, and you refer to some of the stakeholders that suffer as a result of that. What's the problem that this lack of business data analytics is presenting? So on a really basic level, the problem is the lack of feedback uh, between policymakers like the president and his advisors and other people in government um, and the intelligence community itself. So the intelligence community right now can't tell you how many times a report was accessed, who read it, what they might have used after that call. Um, and so what's happening is the intelligence community doesn't understand its own usefulness. Uh, and we're calling for business now data analytics to be used to generate that kind of feedback mechanism for the IC. You use that term business analytics throughout this report too, and it strikes me, you, you cite that it's already widely used in the business world. This is knowable information. This is not suggesting the creation of some new mechanism that doesn't exist already, right? Exactly. This is really common practice in the business world, and we're just calling on the IC to take that common practice um, and use it for itself by creating an integrated uh, system to collect business data analytics itself. You write, today's analysts are still receiving outdated anecdotal feedback rather than detailed data and analysis of the intelligence products they produce. What would change that? What does the IC need that it doesn't have now? Or what does it need to do that it's not doing now? So it needs to create the kind of technological platform to collect that feedback in an easy way. So right now, an analyst doesn't is not able to see whether the report was read once or whether it was read a thousand times. Um, and we should be able to collect that really easily and provide that feedback so that the analyst and his or her supervisors are able to say, this report was really useful, collect more information on that, or hey, no one's using this information, stop collecting information on that. Uh, another passage, the ICs always resisted external efforts to assess the value of the intelligence it provides. That suggests to me, as I read between the lines, Alexandra, that there's a cultural issue at play here, too. Is that a fair read? I think that's definitely a fair read, and we highlight some of the barriers um, 
and culture is one reason why this hasn't already been adapted in the intelligence community. Um, these tools and practices have been around for decades uh, in the business world, and so we're really calling um, for a role for Congress to play to really generate that change um, that the IC needs to make. And we think that Congress can call for it in the appropriations and authorization that they use for the IC to generate some will to actually uh, implement these systems. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I wonder if that cultural barrier is because the IC doesn't believe that this information or collecting it and making it available in this way is valuable, or if they just don't feel like changing. I think there's probably a little bit of everything in there. The IC does, uh, it, it's important to note that data does not equal uh, value. So just because a report was only read once doesn't mean it's not critically important for some national security decision, but we're calling for using business data analytics to collect more information um, and generate more feedback that will be definitely valuable for assessing uh, priorities um, before we make really big investments in new technologies and new collection methods. And my amateur understanding of business data analytics is that if a report is only read once, but it's read, for example, by the President of the United States, that makes it tremendously valuable, right? Exactly. And the IC, when they're building these platforms to collect the information, can certainly account for that when they build them. You have a number of recommendations, and I wish I had time to talk about all of them. But as you mentioned, one of them is creating a congressional demand signal for IC business data. Is it as simple as overseers in Congress saying you have to do this and the IC going ahead and doing it? That's definitely one place to start. So Congress can create the change uh, or create a demand for change, and then it's up to the IC to actually implement that. And Congress can make sure that they're doing that by requiring uh, reporting mechanisms, feedback, calling for testimony from officials who are leading these efforts to make sure that they're doing it in the right way. And you mentioned appropriations and authorization. It strikes me those are the two most important ways that Congress can provide some kind of mechanism, if not a forcing function, right? Sure, but they can also just ask questions of the IC. So individual members who serve on the intelligence committees um, can ask questions of IC officials to generate that demand signal. So it doesn't have to be always um, these formal authorization appropriation figures. Just asking the right questions can signal that the Congress is watching the IC and wants to make sure that they're doing these basic data practices. Another one of your recommendations is creating a standing interagency group of IC business data experts to innovate around intelligence customer experience solutions. Are there models for that in government now, or is that something that the IC would look to the private sector for? I think the IC should look everywhere. They should look to the government for best practices. Um, in our research, we found that the um, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare have their own data analytics office to collect information about how best to serve patients. So the IC should look at analogous examples in government and in the private sector to best suit their platform. Alexander, uh, thanks to uh, Katrina and Matt for this work, and thanks to you for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, a brand new rule for cybersecurity maturity model certification. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new final interim rule and what the framework means for contractors. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The interim final rule for the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program is out, and it includes a wrinkle for companies that want or need to comply. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland & Knight. Eric, thanks for coming on. 
The wrinkle that I'm referring to is one that you pointed me to about self-certification. I thought the whole point of this was that you didn't self-certify anymore. Tell me what's going on here, please. Right, this is actually an additional requirement to CMMC. So it looks like there are kind of two tracks of certification requirements. There's a CMMC third-party certification requirement, which we were all expecting with this rule. And then we heard some rumblings, but not confirmed, but now it is confirmed that there's going to be a certification required with respect to compliance with NIST Special Publication 800-171. And that, for most contractors, is going to be a self-certification that they have to do every three years um, if they're kind of considered low risk. Medium risk and high risk contractors are going to have a DOD entity certify them for compliance with NIST 800-171. All right, I'm a total amateur, but the term interim final rule sounds like a legal term. What does that mean? <laughs> um, Sure, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of legal terms that the government uses in the uh, federal acquisition system. Um, but interim final rule is a little bit different than a final rule. Um, here, we never had a, a proposed rule. So what's going to happen is the rule will come into effect uh, at the end of November, um, and folks will have an opportunity to comment on it. But there's a period where there's going to be comments coming in and considered by DOD, um, and will not be implemented yet. So we're gonna, we have this interim final rule that's going to be in effect before any comments are taken from the public. And that's the biggest difference. When, when you go through proposed rule stage, the rule isn't effective yet, um, and DOD takes in the comments and considers them and before issuing a final rule. Here, we have an interim final rule that, which will be in effect even without comments. So, it's, so the way that the rule is written, the way that it was released today, that's it. Companies need to follow that the way that it's written, but it's still possible that it could change over time. Am I interpreting all of that correctly? You're 100% correct. And with regard to these requirements, it's not going to impact every DOD contractor. It will just depend on what kind of information they have and which contracts they have. For instance, with the 800-171 certification requirement, self-certification or DOD certification, it's going to depend, mostly depend on the, on the possession of information that will trigger uh, compliance uh, with 800-171. With the CMMC requirement, it's going to be required that it goes into your contract before it's effective. Um, both will require um, to be in your contract to be effective. So we're looking at kind of a gradual rollout of these requirements, but they're fairly significant for folks who have this information. So what is different about this than what you and I have talked about the possibilities could be in the past, Eric? So um, a couple of differences are, one, with the 800-171 kind of certification, that's going to be required to be flowed down. And it's interesting, this creates kind of a dual track certification program. And if you're doing a self-certification uh, for compliance with 800-171, you better make sure you're right, because sooner or later, there's going to be a CMMC third party um, certification where a third-party assessor is gonna come in and review your compliance with 800-171, and those two things don't match together, that's a risk area for a company. And I think this whole kind of dual certification system is something that is, is quite a bit different than what we were expecting with the CMMC rule. As far as the CMMC rule um, alone is considered, I don't think there's a ton that's surprising within the rule itself. Um, we, knew, we knew that certifications were gonna to have to happen every three years. We knew that they were gonna to have to happen upon award. We knew it was going to have to be flowed down all the way through the supply chain, um, so subcontractors are. Um, the rule, the way it's written, um, one interesting thing is that it's not entirely clear who's going to make the determination on what level a subcontractor needs to have. Um, the way I initially read the rule, and in, in it just came out for public preview today, is that um, 
con the prime contractor will make the assessment on what level the subcontractor will have and will have to ensure that that subcontractor has the correct level. Um, but it's not entirely clear to me if DOD will play a role in that or not. It doesn't look like it from the way the rule's written, but things can change. Katie Arrington, the leader of CMMC at the Pentagon, was on the weekend edition of Government Matters talking about all of these issues. She said the first uh, cohort of uh, auditors will be hitting the street soon. They've graduated from their first training. Uh, what's the timing look like, or what cues do you get from this uh, rule about what the timing could be for the companies that have to comply? So as far as the CMMC part goes, um, it's going to be, this rule is going to be effective at the end of November. So that means that this can start appearing in RFQs and RFPs towards the end of November. So DOD is going to be very careful about which contracts they choose to put this in, but there will be some contractors that will have to have a CMMC certification for contracts that are awarded after the late November timeframe. So this is starting to roll out. This is starting to be real. It's not going to affect a huge slice of contractors to begin with, but you're talking about a few thousand initially. That's not insignificant. Um, but it's it's much smaller than the entire defense industrial base, which is hundreds of thousands of contractors. But over the next five years, we're going to see it roll out to all those hundreds of thousands of contractors. So whether you're in part of this initial cohort or not, you're going to have to start paying attention. Eric Cruz, thanks very much as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, this year's virtual AUSA conference features four days of breaking Army news, seminars, and interactive virtual exhibits. You'll hear from the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Army, the Chief of Staff, and the Sergeant Major of the Army, and a lot more. It's happening October 13th through 16th. You can get more information at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.